Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, Errol Morris, director of the Academy Award-winning Fog of War, considers the infamous Abu Ghraib photographs in his new film, Standard Operating Procedure, which will be released this Friday from Sony Pictures Classics. It's a story about error compounding error, Morris tells host Megan Daum, columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Photography can conceal and reveal. We think we know the story, he says, but we really don't. In this riveting interview, Morris examines the nature of this war's iconographic images, speaks intimately of the people closely involved, and maintains that we're all complicit in this. Recorded before a live audience at Harmony Gold Theater as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Megan Down. For nearly three decades, Errol Morris has been challenging audiences to think not only about the nature of documentary film, but about the meaning of the word director. From his early work, such as Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida, which use human eccentricities to look at some of life's most vexing existential questions, to the darker mysteries of films like Mr. Death, which portrayed an electric chair builder turned Holocaust denier, and was actually funny, despite all that, to the groundbreaking 1988 film The Thin Blue Line, Morris consistently brings an unparalleled level of intellect, sensitivity, and nuance to his material. He has received five grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as fellowships from the MacArthur Foundation and the Guggenheim Foundation. He was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2007. In 2004, his film, The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara, won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The film you've just seen, Standard Operating Procedure, has already won the Jury Grand Prize at the Berlin Film Festival. Morris is co-author with Philip Gurevich of a book about Abu Ghraib, also called Standard Operating Procedure, that will be published when the film is released later this month. When I first saw this film a few weeks ago, I had many reactions, as you are no doubt having right now. But among them was the thought that I had seen something of profound importance, culturally, politically, from a humanitarian perspective, it was important. There's just really no other way to put it. So I think you'll agree that we're extraordinarily privileged tonight to be able to speak with this film's creator. And with that, I'd like to welcome Errol Morris. Thank you very much. The photos from Abu Ghraib, particularly the most iconic ones, I think they had such a, a visceral impact that it's, it's, people are starting to sort of remember the first time they saw them in some of the same ways they remember major historical events, remembering the first, when they heard a president was shot, that sort of thing. So I guess I wanted to start by asking you how you first came to see these photographs. Did you see them on the internet? Did you see them in the New Yorker, the way probably many people in this audience did? And, and what sort of story were they telling you initially? I've become so confused over the years. I've looked at these photographs so many, many, many times. It's been a very odd cultural phenomenon, both the photographs and the release of the photographs. I felt from very early on that there was a big part of the story missing that simply had not been told by anybody. The story of why these pictures were taken, who took them. On one hand, you could say, well, it's obvious what was going on. You just look at the photographs. The photographs should tell you everything you need to know. On the other hand, I wanted to know more. I was intrigued by this very simple question. What am I looking at? I think that's the best and simplest way to describe it. What am I looking at here? You've written in, in the New York Times online, you've written a series of essays about photography, and there was one that you wrote last summer that talked about 
the inherent fallacy that photographs somehow tell the truth. You use the term, well, you borrow Othello's term, the ocular truth. You say that, in fact, photographs attract the opposite of truth. They attract false beliefs. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously that is at the core of, of this film, but is that a notion that you have come to over the course of your career? Or is that just a kind of idea that you've had all along? Is, is this a professionally originated idea or something just in you? The film director who hates images. It's an odd career move. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's something that evolved slowly. And the Abu Ghraib pictures has a lot to do with it. Mm. The realization that photographs can conceal as well as reveal. They can provide an expose and they can also at the same time create a cover-up. I think that is absolutely true of all of these photographs in particular. We think we know the story, we imagine a story by looking at the photographs, but we really don't know what the story is. Another problem, I think it's a major problem in the story of the photographs, is that they became politicized almost immediately. They became political football. The left had its view. These guys are evil, but they're evil because Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, etc. are evil. The right had its view. They're evil, but they're evil because they're rogue soldiers acting on their own. They're bad apples. It's interesting to me that both the left and the right, it's apolitical in this sense, had that same view. They're evil. We don't have to bother to look at them. We already know everything we need to know about these people. I believe that also was a very big mistake. I'm curious about the, the sort of mechanics of how you started your research, but rather than sort of you know, giving us a tutorial on that, I want to ask about some of these specific people. I mean, I think what's striking to so many people when they see this film is that Lindy England and Sabrina Harmon and and their colleagues are not monsters at all. In fact, there are moments where they're genuinely likable. What did you expect when you called them? I genuinely like them. And I, it's, that comes across. Did you contact them and have to explain yourself? I mean, I would think that it's not like getting a call from American Idol. What is it like for one of these people to get a call from, from Errol Morris? Seriously, did they know Well, I've never gotten were? a call from American Idol. I'm still <laughs> After tonight, it's going to happen. But what, what, Could happen. I mean, what was the first, who was the first person you, you contacted? Janice Karpinski is the first person in the, the first person you interviewed, I believe. Yes, I um, interviewed Janice Karpinski now over two years ago. Uh, my cameraman, Bob Chappell, had seen her on C-SPAN and said, you should check this out. I think this would interest you. I watched part of the interview and I thought, yeah, I would like to do this. And what do you say when you call her? What's your pitch? Because you interviewed her for 17 hours, I believe. Yeah, well, you don't. This is, I'm not supposed to offer a tutorial, but it's probably really good advice if you plan to interview someone for 17 hours not to tell them that in advance. <laughs> I didn't tell you. <laughs> um. I'm ready. Janice was the first. I really had no idea how long I was going to interview her for. One of the interesting things about that particular interview, I think you imagine if it's going to be 17 hours, you pace yourself in some way. If you're going to get angry, really angry, you don't want to get really angry right away. Maybe you should save it for later. Janice started off angry and got angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier through the full 17 hours. I think that's fair to say. Over how many days were these 17 hours? Two. Two days. You know, I've been asked 
question hasn't come up here yet, but the question repeatedly does come up. No one says they're sorry. No one directly expresses remorse. I think we forget one very central feature of all of this is that the people that I interviewed are angry, very, very angry. And they're angry because they feel they have been used as scapegoats, that the real story has never been told. And I agree with them. It's not as though I feel that these people are lily white, but I do feel that they were used as very convenient scapegoats by all of us, by every one of us. I think there's another very dangerous tendency with this kind of a story. I often hear people talk about the Stanley Milgram experiments on obedience to authority, Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment, the banality of evil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As if these people were all faceless automatons. They were in some way all the same. Uh, that they were devoid of morality. One thing I can say, having made this movie, is that all of these characters are really different. They don't represent one kind of person. Each of these people enlisted for their own reasons. Now here's an irony for you. Sabrina Harmon, who is the sister and the daughter of cops, wanted to be a cop herself, wanted to be a forensic photographer for the police. Before she went in, that's what she wanted to be? Before she went to Abu Ghraib. And this was a way of getting money for college. You're listening to filmmaker Errol Morris with Megan Down. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Marco Werman. Some people in France say they refuse jobs because of their race, but it's hard to prove. Collecting statistics on race is against French law. You are not entitled to ask what is your skin color. Somebody may be discriminating against because of his skin color, but you don't know which one. A sociologist wants France to confront its race problem by the numbers. That's next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. This is Ira Glass of This American Life, and we are coming to your town. Well, kind of. We're actually trying something that no other public radio show has ever tried. We're putting on a live show and sending it out in high definition via satellite into hundreds of movie theaters across the country, live. It'll be stories and outtakes from the brand new season of our television show. I'll perform a radio story, answer audience questions. Thursday, May 1st. For tickets, visit kpcc.org or thisamericanlife.org. You can now get KPCC and NPR News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org where you'll find information on NPR Mobile from KPCC. Oh, and we're also still here at 89.3. KPCC brings you in-depth news without commercials. You make that possible when taking the step from KPCC listener to KPCC contributing member. Take that step today at kpcc.org. And thanks. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by California State University Fullerton's Mahalo College of Business and Economics with over 8,500 students. Alumnus and college namesake Stephen G. Mahalo has committed $30 million to the college's future growth. You can find out more about how to help make a difference today online at fullerton.edu slash business. Cal State Fullerton, a place to learn, to grow, and to invest in the future.
I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to filmmaker Errol Morris with Megan Down. Megan Ambule was motivated by patriotism. She was angered by 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven. <laughs> That's why we fight. <laughs> Maybe that is why we should die. By 9-11. You felt she was motivated by patriotism? I think all of these people are, are very, very, very different. And I think not seeing them as people and as different kinds of people is a mistake as well. I mean, there's so many errors in this story. It's a story to me about uh, error, compounding error. I remember seeing this one picture for the first time. It's the picture of Sabrina Harmon, a uh, big smile on her face, thumb in the air, and the corpse of an Iraqi prisoner. Now, you really know nothing about the photograph. You just see this picture. The picture is in the movie. You hear Sabrina trying to provide an account of her smile, as if somehow she herself feels it. That's what's so remarkable about it. She herself has started to think that the smile is the crime. Her reaction to whatever recorded in this photograph is the crime. What's interesting is as I started to reconstruct the events around that photograph, another story emerges, a completely different story, radically different story than the story that I first imagined just simply looking at the photograph itself. Al Jamadi, we know his name, was brought in by special ops, by Navy SEALs, and by the CIA. He walked to the shower room, the shower room in 1B, on his own accord. He walked in, he left a corpse. Immediately, the highest levels in the prison, the top brass, the colonels, the lieutenant colonels, the captains, organized a cover-up. And a day later, he was put on a gurney with an oxygen mask and an IV, and they took him out of Abu Ghraib. Sabrina did not in any way have anything to do with the cover-up or the murder. Nothing whatsoever. So you might ask yourself, what is her crime? What is her crime here? Her crime was that she and some fellow soldiers got the keys to this room. They got in, and she started taking photographs. At first, she took these joke photographs. She took a picture of Chuck Grainer smiling with his thumb up. Chuck Grainer took a picture of her smiling with her thumb up. They left, and then she came back, and she took over a dozen pictures of the corpse as a forensic photographer would take of a crime scene. And it became immediately obvious to her that this man had not died of a heart attack. He had been most clearly beaten to death. So here you have a really interesting story. If not for Sabrina's photographs of this crime scene, we would know nothing of this murder. What she did by taking these photographs is to render a very important public service. I'm fond of pointing out that under a different set of circumstances, instead of a year in prison, she would be given a Pulitzer Prize in photography. And yet we imagine what all of this was without really knowing much of anything. It's a question that keeps coming back to me again and again and again and again. What was the crime here? Now, if you ask me what the crime was, I would say the crime is murder. It's a fairly serious crime, correct me if I'm wrong. Crime is murder. 
We know who the CIA guy interrogating, we know who that guy was. We know his identity. A guy named John Swanner. We know all of the people who participated in the cover-up. Why haven't any of those people been charged? Why was the only person charged in connection with this, why was it Sabrina Harmon? Charges were eventually dropped. Only person held accountable, and here's my theory, my, see if I can get this straight, my theory in a nutshell, the crime here was nothing that was depicted in the photographs. It was the crime of photography. It was the crime of embarrassing the military, the administration, America. Yes, America. Embarrassing America with these photographs. I would say so embarrassing that no one bothered to look further into what those photographs actually really were about. So there, there's my, there's my spiel. On the, just the subject of the photographs in and of themselves, I'm curious what you think about the style of photography that this particular war has brought us. I think it's, it's fair to say that the aesthetic is markedly different than one we had, say, in Vietnam. There's the, the sort of the professionalization of the way that the war is documented has given way to this to cell phone cameras and everyone taking pictures and a sort of YouTube aesthetic. I mean, we don't have the, the iconic images from this war are Abu Ghraib. The iconic images from Vietnam are Nick Oot's photograph of the girl running down the street after napalm. And it's a very, it's a very different sort of look. And I have often wondered if if there's a sort of distancing that happens because they look, the photographs that we're getting look like they could be on YouTube. They look like they could be on somebody's Facebook page, aesthetically, not in terms of content. Do you feel like that changes the way people think about what's going on? I think there are a lot of differences. I also think this is a different kind of war than we have ever had before. Part of it, of course, is this digital revolution, the fact that people can take photographs, many, 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 many photographs. They're no longer printed. They're displayed on screens. They can be sent around the world instantly to millions of different places. It's a different world altogether. And the fact that the iconic photographs of this war will have been taken not by war photographers, but by soldiers who actually were part of the war is something unique and different from most anything we've seen before. I'm also, I mean, it's interesting that you should mention the napalm girl, the, one of the iconic photographs of Vietnam. There, America, uh, the enemy is unseen. All you see is this victim running down a dirt road, this naked girl. We know very little about that photograph as well. These photographs are truly different in terms of what is being said, even on first glance. Many of the photographs are posed almost as if they were created for the camera. Sabrina smiling with her thumbs up, Grainer smiling with his uh, thumbs up posing for the camera, performing for the camera, the pyramid, uh, Gilligan, the hooded man on the box with wires, Lindy with Gus on the leash, all of these were photographs that might not have, uh, I should put it somewhat differently, these things might not have ever happened if someone wasn't taking a photograph. You really think that? Uh, I actually do think that, Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that in itself is really quite extraordinary. And part of it is that I think that the photographs capture something about this war, because I often think of it as a war of sexual humiliation at its heart. It was about trying to show Iraq who's boss, who's more powerful, who's dominant. You know, I sometimes think that the entire foreign policy of the United States for years was just simply kill Saddam. Oh, this was, 
country of 300 million people directed to killing one man as if this would be a solution to the problems of the world. I think we've entered a time of complete and utter madness. I don't know how else to describe it. I was in Los Angeles trying to convince the MPAA to give this movie an R rating. Oh, does it have a rating? It has a rating. And of course, it's very, very important in distribution what kind of a rating you're going to get. And I didn't want to change the photographs. I felt the photographs were important. You can't alter the photographs. And I started uh, to discuss with the head of the MPAA the fact that, that this was a war for me of humiliation. And she said, that's very interesting because the horror movies that are now coming out since the war began are really different than horror movies ever before. Now you don't simply kill people. It's really, really important to humiliate them. Yeah, you kill them in the end, but first you humiliate them horribly, and then you kill them, as if the real purpose is humiliation. Odd in this kind of a war that the actual pictures that we see should be just that. Odd that Grainer would ask his then girlfriend, Lindy England, who by her own account weighed 90 pounds at the time, 20 years old, to stand next to an Iraqi prisoner who had to be force-fed. He had to be fed intravenously. He was starving himself to death. The pictures say a lot. I'm not sure that it's clear what they say. Maybe it's not even clear to me, but they, in fact, say a lot about this war and about us. I was wondering when I was watching the film what the role of interpreters was in the prison. Yeah, they call them Terps. We heard, I, I caught that finally. What were they doing? Did you have any sense of what was the role of this person? I mean, because presumably these interrogators can't all speak Arabic. Most of them don't know Arabic. Their role is simply to interpret Arabic into English and vice versa. And are they, did you have any occasion to communicate with any of them to find out what they were thinking? I mean, what, what a odd, what a place to be in. I mean, what could they, did any of them leave? Did any of them escape? Did any of them try to do anything? I'm not sure that I understand. Well, what would it, I mean, because you were watching these photographs and we're imagining these scenarios and at some point we think, oh, wait a second, there's, some, you know, there's an Iraqi there who's working, who's an interpreter. And are they complicit in this? Well, we're all complicit in it. Hey, wait a second. I mean, this is a practical, I'm just as a practical question. I just don't know uh, I, the, the sort of, you know, political, the socio... I reenacted this drop of blood when Diaz talks about trying to hang al-Jamadi a little higher, a drop of blood falls on his uniform. I mean, this is, this is my M.O., in case it isn't obvious. I hear a line, and I think the line is important, and I call attention to the line by creating a visual image around it. It could be skulls falling down a stairwell in a fog of war. It could be a milkshake in the thin blue line, a drop of blood in standard operating procedure. I was moved and fascinated by Diaz saying, you know, I have nothing to do with this. But then why is there a drop of blood on my uniform? I think it's similar to the position we're all in. And I felt it when he said it very, very, very strongly, very powerfully. What are these people's lives I mean, like you now? seem surprised that people just work there. Yes, people work there. It's the military. Oh, no, I know, but I mean, if you are, I just was, well, I won't belabor it, but I, I was, it stuck in my mind, like there is another, there's a sort of third party here. Well, there are, lots are, of, there are lots of groups there. I mean, there's interpreters that were employed by Titan Corporation. There were interrogators brought in by Khaki Corporation. There was military intelligence. There were military police. There were special ops. There was what they call OGA, uh, 
I love the idea of having to have an acronym for another acronym, <laughs> as if one acronym isn't another, enough. And in fact, you have an acronym which is a euphemism for an acronym. <laughs> there are all of these diverse groups. Foreign intelligence agencies, people rendered from Abu Ghraib to Jordan. There's all of this stuff going on. It's the intelligence center of the war in Iraq. There are over 10,000 prisoners there. We're talking about something immense. People have this idea that it represents a couple of cells or a tier in what was known as the hard site. It was immense, and yet we have no knowledge of it. I also find it fascinating. I would sit and I'd read my morning New York Times. Excuse me, that's my Times. And um, <laughs> I would sit and I'd read about the CIA destroying the Zubaida tapes. There were two tapes of this interrogation, and they were destroyed. How dare they? Where are they? What'd you do with them? Blah, 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 blah. They destroyed everything at Abu Ghraib. There's a whole story about the amnesty and the destruction of evidence at Abu Ghraib. No one knows about it. I even have the signed statement by Colonel Pappas, who essentially was in control of the prison, ordering the amnesty. Amnesty, by the way, in this case is a shorthand for cover-up. Confusion about almost everything with this story. I hear again and again and again, Joseph Darby, the hero who leaked the pictures. First of all, uh, everybody knew about the pictures to begin with, almost everybody. Second of all, the pictures that he gave to CID are not the pictures that we eventually got to see. The only reason these pictures got out is because an anonymous person leaked them to Cy Hirsch in 60 Minutes. It had nothing whatsoever to do with any of that stuff. The army given its druthers, we would know nothing. You're listening to filmmaker Errol Morris with Megan Daum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. The important Pennsylvania primary comes up Tuesday, and on the next edition of Air Talk, we will spend considerable time taking a look at where things stand, the biggest issues being decided on by voters, and the nature of the electorate in Pennsylvania. It's a huge day for Democrats Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Hear all about it on the next edition of Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. A Prairie Home Companion comes back to sunny Los Angeles to record a broadcast Friday, June the 6th at the Greek Theater. Martin Sheen joins our acting company. Bonnie Raitt will sing the blues on stage with the guys' all-star shoe band. Fred Newman, our sound effects man, will be there. All that plus the news from Lake Wobegon and, of course, Guy Noir, Private Eye. A Prairie Home Companion at the Greek Theater, June the 6th. Ticket information at kpcc.org. Carolyn Jessup was the fourth wife of one of the supposed leaders of the Texas polygamous compound that was raided by authorities. I'm Pat Morrison. She'll be describing what life is like inside such a group and why the authorities moved in. And Tuesday is Earth Day, the day the whole food chain stops using plastic bags altogether. Listen for it here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by UCLA Live, presenting Kuali Music of Pakistan. The devotional music of the Sufis, Kuali uses poetic texts, voices, rhythms, and the warm resonance of the tabla to express the pure relation of divine love. Brothers Mare and Sher Ali, two of the finest Kuali musicians, lead a celebration of the human spirit at Royce Hall, April 24th. Information at uclalive.org.
I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to filmmaker Errol Morris with Megan Down. Do we know anything? Do we know where that person came from? We pretty much do. <laughs> oh, come on, I have to tantalize you in some way. <laughs> is it in the book? Is the answer to that question in the book? You have to read the book. Come on. <laughs> oh, no, we'll buy the book. You can sell the book. You used to be, work as a private investigator. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Because <laughs> you've referred to yourself as a, you know, not only a, a writer, director, or a producer, director, but a detective director. And I think you, I read that in, in reference to Thin Blue Line. Yes. But um, this is, I think, a very salient example of needing to be a detective. Do you, did you feel like you just exhausted all of your resources? I mean, what was, it, what was it like? When did you know you were kind of done and you were just going to decide that this... How did you know when the end point arrived, I guess, is what I'm asking, in the film? Well, the problem when you're doing your own investigation is you never know when the end point is reached much better to work for someone because they just tell you to stop. <laughs> they won't pay you anymore. That's correct. Usually telling you to stop implies that, but they can also say, it's time to stop. I'm not going to pay you anymore. And there's some enormous relief in that. It's much, much more of a problem when you're involved in an investigation and there is no way of stopping. I was very grateful in the case of the Thin Blue Line that I was finally able to get Randall Adams out of prison. I was able to get enough information to conclusively prove that he hadn't committed the crime. And then there was one other small detail that was helpful. I was able to get the murderer to confess. Um, and I felt really, really, really grateful. I still feel really grateful because I sometimes think that I could have gone on just for years and years and years and years with that thing. I feel in a similar position with respect to Abu Ghraib. I feel as though it's not finished, really. There's the book. I want to put everything that I've been able to uncover online. I have this idea of a Abu Ghraib archive so that all of this material can be made available to the public. And I'm writing, I'm writing uh, more stuff for the New York Times. I, have a two-part essay on reenactments, and next week I have a piece where the first time I'm talking about Abu Ghraib, talking about actually what we were talking about just a moment ago is the Sabrina Harmon photograph, which I describe as like the Cheshire cat. You see the smile, but you don't really see anything else. And it's my attempt to supply the missing pieces that we don't know about. And what would you love to have happen out of all of this? Ooh. <laughs> this is another strange phenomenon. It was asked, I don't know, by how many people, how many times, have you found the smoking gun? Have you found the smoking gun? It goes back to that photograph again. For you to see a crime, you have to be willing to see a crime. You have to be predisposed to see a crime. Uh, to me, Abu Ghraib is the smoking gun. It's there right in front of our eyes. In this essay, I hate to quote myself, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> I wrote, how many torture memos have to be promulgated before you get the idea that the administration might be interested in promulgating torture? The evidence is really there. To me, the question is, why hasn't he been impeached? There's a flip side, by the way, to these torture memos. The one that was just released. You know, I tried to read it. I try to read a lot of these documents. They're difficult to read, if not impossible to read. This most recent U torture memo is, what, 70, 80 pages in length. You go through the various sections and subsections, the discussions of the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth Amendment, international treaties, Geneva, this, that, and the other thing. 
I got tired, you know, you, you start to try to, I believe the term is cut to the chase. <laughs> the very end of the memo basically tells you that the president has the right to do anything he chooses to do. He has the right to abrogate international treaties. He has the right to ignore the legislative and uh, judicial branches of our government. Uh, he has the right to do anything and everything, unchecked in any way. I read it and I think to myself, oh, well, this is interesting. Doesn't it mean he's responsible for everything? If that is the underlying idea, that he decides, isn't he responsible for what has happened, and why is he not being held accountable for what he has done? Now it's time for questions from the Sokolo audience for filmmaker Errol Morris. My name is Jay Ellis, and uh, you did a good job of indicting all of us, and we plead guilty as charged. We did elect Mr. Bush, King George. So I feel that we are in some way culpable, although that's an abstraction. My question for you is, what is it, and honestly, why did you not devote a portion of the film to exploring another story that is who really is culpable who are the players above these victims because we don't want to be victims and these poor people they're victims who why don't we go up through Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush why don't we shake that thing what makes you think that first of all that we haven't and that I haven't I haven't in this movie because I was interested in something else I feel something that is just as important, and I can tell you why. First, answering the question about the higher-ups, we know quite a bit. I'm also going to publish this essay, 40 Things We Don't Know About Abu Ghraib, and maybe we're afraid to ask. There is a lot that is available out there. There is a lot that is not available. In terms of the Defense Department and the administration, we know a lot. Uh, again, I would say the question is not so much finding the smoking gun, is acknowledging that it's there and doing something about it. Uh, if people don't want to see a murder and don't want to prosecute a murder, I'm not sure what you can do to force them to see it. Yeah, I, I think all of these stories about the last seven years are very, very, very important. I believe that this is a very important story. I'm, I'm inevitably put on the defensive by people who say, well, how come you didn't make this movie about Rumsfeld, or how come you didn't make this movie about Cheney? Well, I didn't. I'm sorry. I actually think that there's something at stake here that is really, really important to our democracy. I often think that this whole question of torture is misplaced. Not that it isn't important, just that there are things that perhaps are even more important. Uh, you start talking about torture, the argument quickly devolves into ticking atomic bombs, uh, is it justified in this instance? Is it justified in that instance? Implacable foe, horribly villainous enemy, what are we to do? Back and forth, back and forth. Really nothing is accomplished. I think there's a much simpler principle here that needs to be addressed, and it's a principle of fair play. And what we think of as common American decency and the rule of law. I have this old-fashioned, I would call it populist belief, that you don't punish the little guys and allow the big guys to walk away scot-free. 
And I think it's really, really important to understand how this actually has happened, to understand what has happened to these little guys. Uh, it's a very significant part of the story. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, my belief that, again, they helped George Bush get reelected in 2004 because they gave him someone to blame. Uh, they gave us all someone to blame. You know, we fought a war 200 some odd years ago because we didn't want to be ruled by a king. And I think it's time that we take our democracy back. Um, it's, you don't think that we know enough about what has happened in this administration in the last seven years? I would say that what we're seeing is a kind of cowardice. I'm not even sure on the part of whom. A failure of will, whatever. Uh, something has deeply gone wrong and it's not just about torture, it's about something much, much deeper. Sorry to go on at such length, my apologies. No, no. Good evening, sir, my name is Kimber Smith and it's a tremendous honor to be with you today. It seems to me that there is in fact a thin blue line between fact and fiction and this is a recurring theme that seems in some of your films. Your characters are as salient as some of the great characters of literature, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about playing with fact and fiction as you construct your narratives. The difference between fact and fiction to me is an important distinction. You know, it, it's important to know what actually has happened. I wrote an essay on the hooded man, and this is again for the New York Times, and people got really angry what difference does it make who's under the hood? After all, whoever it was, he was tortured. He's a symbol of torture. Well, to me, it makes all the difference. What actually is shown in a photograph, to me, makes all the difference. Understanding what it is that we read about, what it is that we look at, makes all the difference. And truth isn't something that I have privileged access to. I don't. I'm as fallible as the next guy. However, pursuing it seems to me an important human endeavor. You know, I try to contribute in some small way to this story. Yeah, it's bigger for me than just the Iraq war. It's how we all can be turned around in odd ways, in unexpected ways and how we can reconnect with the world, how we can reconnect with what actually has happened, what actually is out there. Put very simply, how you can reconnect with the truth. But I'm glad you like my characters, by the way. Thank you. Hi, I'm Vajra Chikmedian. I want to thank you for giving a voice to a lot of the people in the film to go along with the pictures that we had seen in the papers, because I think that's a very important job that you did in that film. My question is about all the other prisons. You had that scene where Karpinski was showing all the prisons in Iraq. Yeah. Was there something special about Abu Ghraib? Or was this a problem that infiltrated all these prisons in all of Iraq? Abu Ghraib was special in the sense that it was the largest and it was the center of intelligence operations. Special in that sense, but do I believe that it's unique among American military prisons? I do not. And of course, there's ample evidence to suggest that at Bagram and in Guantanamo, there were similar things going on. Uh, I didn't research all of the Iraqi prisons or all of the prisons uh, under American military control. I, I think I had a big story without trying to make it uh, bigger and more diffuse. I felt that I could do something more powerful and more significant by staying close to the photographs and the people who took them. So let's see what I do next. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to filmmaker Errol Morris with Megan Daum. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenshole. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Joya, the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. Radio is the ideal medium for ideas. Radio provides a kind of conversation that we have nowhere else in society, and Zocalo Radio is one of the places that you should listen to. I've been coming to the Zocalo events for probably two or three years. I think it's just a great, great program. I like the opportunity that he can come and track with the community and talk about intelligent discussions. You know what I, what I really like about Zocalo is that the really diverse subject matter that you guys do, there's really no overall paradigm to it. You guys program a lot of very interesting stuff, and I think that that's really great for the community. So I went on your website, and then I saw all those great programs coming up. Zocalo is great. I've been a big fan for a long time. Intellectual discussion out here in the middle of nowhere for free in the evening in downtown LA. It's great. It's incredible. And as soon as I have extra money, I'm going to donate because I do appreciate it. And we need it. We need it in Los Angeles.